Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this hour. Thank you for this time together here as a group of believers gathered in your house. We pray that you would bless our gathering together. Bless John as he preaches your word this morning. May you anoint him with your spirit. May he preach boldly from you, the truth from your word. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. May we see you. Well, good morning and welcome to everyone, and welcome the visitors here. Um, today is Father's Day. I see at least one visiting father. I welcome you to join us here. Fatherhood, or Father's Day, a day that has been set aside to celebrate, to remember fatherhood, similar to Mother's Day. I recognize as well that it's a day that can bring different emotions to different people, depending on past or present circumstances. You probably saw my title today is A Perfect Father, and I've only found two perfect fathers, and can someone help me out as to who the two perfect fathers might be? One is God, that's correct. Thank you, Marvin. <laughs> The one who doesn't have any children yet. So unfortunately, it doesn't, we know it doesn't take very long after having children to realize that we're not quite as perfect as what we might have thought we were. But as Linda said, we do have a perfect Heavenly Father, and it's only in His example that we can see what a perfect Father should be like. We all gauge fatherhood, at least in part, by what our experience has been, whether as fathers ourselves or whether as children who have had a father, whether that father was present or absent or what role he played in your life. It's natural for us to view fatherhood in light of our personal experience. And unfortunately, if that's the only standard that anyone ever has to go by, um, most of us and our children would probably be lacking in what we would see as a perfect example of fatherhood. An obvious but extremely important aspect of a father and a mother as well is to value is the value and worth that they place on their child. And if you would, turn with me to Mark chapter 10. <clears throat> Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. This passage is, shows Jesus meeting with the children and also shows a number of different ways that children are viewed as well as some lessons that Jesus brings out of the situation here. So Mark chapter 10, verse 13. Then they brought little children to him, that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whosoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. The first thing we see is a setting here. Uh, Jesus is once again speaking to a large crowd of people. And interesting enough, we'd read the previous verses. We see he had just uh, addressed the subjects of marriage and divorce. So he was already speaking to the people on the value and necessity of families, strong families. And strong families, I believe, are the building blocks of godly churches, strong communities. 
um, not the other way around. Godly churches and communities help strong families, but they do not create them. Families need to come first. So did Jesus' teaching here about families prompt the people to bring their children to him? Was this the only time he took them on his lap? I don't think so. I didn't actually look it up. I'm not sure. Is there other places recorded? There's other Gospels that record the same event. But I think it was something Jesus did. He, he, he valued children. We do know it was common in that era for parents to bring their young children, um, even babies, to the rabbis or the priests to ask a blessing on them, a public blessing or prayer that this leader would put would pray for these children. And even today we do a similar practice, a yearly practice of a baby dedication, of simply dedicating that child to God and uh, praying a blessing over them. So we know parents want what's best for their children. They desire success, not failure. They desire safety, not harm. Desire blessing and favor from God, but also a desire to raise and teach that child in the ways of God. So here we see in this passage these parents lining up to do just that, to have Jesus touch their children, pray for them, and bless them, and they have literally brought their children to God here in this passage, just as godly parents continue to do down through the ages here. We see a second group of people here as well, and those are the disciples, and as we know, they are young men, uh, probably not fathers yet themselves. And they most likely do not have children of their own and don't understand why these parents feel the need to bring these children up and bother Jesus. To them, children are still a bother. Um, They're noisy, messy little creatures who get in the way of what they feel are more important things. Jesus is having a great discussion here and all of a sudden these kids are running around and they say, whoa, 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 this is not what we're doing today. And they try and refuse the parents, but Jesus sees the situation very differently And it says he's very displeased with his disciples' actions and actually scolds them for their harsh treatment. And my understanding is, I'm not a a Greek scholar, but the term here of rebuking them is a fairly strong term used only a few times um, by Jesus, and this is one of them. So he's, he's actually very harsh with them for turning away the children. And he says, you know, who are you... Um, that they can limit who can or can't come to Christ. So instead, he pauses his sermon, he invites the children into his lap, and he prays for them, and he blesses them. And we know that Jesus never married, had earthly children of his own, and I think the reason is obvious, a number of reasons. Um, That would have created a very odd family tree to have Jesus as your great-great-grandfather. Suppose favoritism, superiority, uh, yeah, it, it would get very complicated. Would his descendants have been fully or partly God to some interesting questions um, that we know God in his all-knowing wisdom did not allow to happen. And furthermore, an earthly family would have distracted from Jesus' purpose here, his ministry here. His time was very short. His purpose was very focused. And yet Jesus, being one with his father, it was a spiritual father, is a spiritual father to all children throughout history. So he, in a sense, um, was these children's spiritual father. And I believe he had as much love for them as any parent could ever have for their own child, even though you know, he probably knew their names as well. And he enjoyed the innocence, the openness of these children, and especially after just having argued with the closed-minded, hypocritical Pharisees, probably meeting with some innocent children was a, a kind of a welcome break from, from the uh, conflict that he had just been through in the previous verses there. 
When Jesus recognized, shared the value of these parents um, that they saw in their children, he honored that by taking time in the middle of a very pressing crowd to give them time and attention um, out of his busy schedule. And he also took, as we parents call it, a teaching moment here. Um, he used the example of a child to illustrate how one must be to enter the kingdom of God. We think of a young child, especially an infant, uh, is very trustful, is easily teachable, and is also very eager to learn. I think the older we get, the less eager we are to learn, or at least for myself. It becomes more difficult, and there probably is less eagerness too. Uh, a young child's mind is very uncluttered by skepticism, by cynicism, or by the responsibilities and cares that face us as adults. And a child comes with no expectations except to simply receive love. That's its primary objective, especially in a, a small child. Uh, they come with open arms expecting to be picked up. And the list goes on. You know what I'm talking about here. Jesus says, for such is the kingdom of God, or this is who that kingdom is made up of. This is what that, that kingdom consists of. And I came across an interesting thought in my study, is how literally is that statement actually true? Um, how literally is the kingdom of God largely comprised of children? Um, we believe, according to Scripture, that a young child is considered safe if they enter eternity before he or she reaches the age of accountability, the age that they understand where they are sinners, before that they are safe. So all babies are born with a sinful nature that's part of man, but there comes a point where a child or teenager realizes that he is sinful and understands how that separates them from God. But before that point, uh, they are safe. Not saved, but they are safe if they die to go to heaven. And if one looks down through history at the countless children who, for whatever reason, uh, whether it's wars, famines, sickness, uh, pagan practices, have entered eternity, um, those numbers quite, be rep quite likely represent um, a very large majority of what is and will be in heaven, of the souls in heaven. If you look at statistics, abortion alone has added an estimated 1.5 billion souls in the last 50 years. So what percentage of heaven's population is actually those who God claimed before they were ever old enough to have a choice? So interesting thought I came across if we think about that. Um, those that had no, no chance. So with Jesus as our example, I want to look today at present-day fatherhood, and many of us are fathers, or one day may become fathers. And I would like to share five stages of fatherhood as a bit of an outline in what I hope is our continuing goal to be more of a perfect father, and using some examples here from the Bible and also from God's character. This is by no means an exhaustive or complete list, and it's not being given by one who has, as Paul says, already attained. I'm as human as the rest of you. The first stage or point in a child's life is to be treasured by his parents. Um, these are T words, so treasured is the first word. When a baby is first born, it needs to be treasured. And we know we think of a treasure, something that's very valuable, something that's a lot of effort um, put into keeping it safe, keeping it um, from harm. It needs to be loved, cared for constantly. And those with newborns, I'm sure that you look at them as a treasure every single moment, every single day. Um, but the fact is they are and even though sometimes it doesn't seem that way. And obviously, early on, a mother plays a greater role than the father does in the minute-by-minute -minute care of a child. But the father plays a very important role as well. We know that 
a baby learns its mother's voice from its time in the womb, but research suggests that it also learns the father's voice. So if the father is there, the father is present during that time, the baby also learns to recognize the father's voice. So this first step isn't just a stage, but something that needs to continue throughout the child's life. If the child is not treasured throughout its life, throughout the rest of the stages, the rest of the stages will not work as well. Um, if the treasuring stage is never established or isn't continued, the following stages simply will not work. And I had to think, difficult to work or won't work? And I think I can say that the following stages simply will not work if, unless a child experiences a certain degree of treasuring. So what does it mean to be treasured? How should a father treasure his children? If you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him, and John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. After he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So setting here, Jesus has just beginning his ministry. Um, he's being baptized. He hadn't really done anything yet, um, as we know, as far as all the miracles and stuff, teaching he did later. But God spoke from heaven here and said he was very pleased with his Son. Again, not because of what he had done, and we know that God knew what Jesus had planned to do, what his plan was, but at this point, God was simply pleased that Jesus was his son. Um, again, not because of what he did, but simply because of who he was. Jesus worked from, not for, his father's acceptance. I think that's a perfect example of a father treasuring his son. Um, there's lots of approval here. It says God is well-pleased, not just a little, but well-pleased. And not because of all Jesus might be someday, but because of who he is today. This is my son. I'm not sure if God is proud or not, but it sounds like he's, almost sounds like he's proud at this point of his son here. And throughout Jesus' ministry, he refers, he refers more to God as a father than anything else. So that relationship was there between Jesus and God of a father and son. As a young boy, um, Jesus' mother found him in the temple talking to the elders. Jesus' answer was that he was about his father's business. And the Lord's Prayer begins with our Father. In many conversations with the disciples, he usually refers to God as the Father. Jesus identified with, with his Father to the extent that he considered himself one with his Father. If we turn to John chapter 14, um, we see a, an excellent example, numerous examples, of where Jesus considered himself almost inseparable from his Father. John chapter 14 don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If we're not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And whether I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. 
and from now on, if you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet have you not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do will he do also, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to my Father. Whatsoever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If he ask anything in my name, I will do it. So looking down through here, um, verse 1, Jesus is very clear that if you believe in the Father, you must also believe in the Son as well. And verse 2, he goes to his Father's house to prepare. What is the Father's is also the Son's here. And verse 7, he answers the question, um, to know the Son means to know the Father as well. Jesus is happy to represent his Father. And he's happy, he's confident to say that if you know me, you know my Father as well. There's a family resemblance to the point of instantly recognizing one by having known the other. And I know um, we see that today. We say, oh, I think I know who your siblings are, who your parents are. Um, have you been recognized by someone who knows your father? Verse 10, they agree. What one says, the other confirms. Um, they think alike, they act alike. And verse 13, the son honors the father. The treasuring here goes both ways. Yes, the father honors the son, but the son also returns that honor. So here we have a perfect example of a relationship between the father and the son. And we say, well, yeah, sure, that's, that's Jesus and God we're talking about. Of course, that's perfect. But that is exactly the point. Um, no other father-son relationship can ever be as perfect as what theirs is. And that's why this example we look towards, that's also why that's the only perfect father we'll ever have. Earthly fathers, unfortunately, will not be perfect. But Jesus made a way for us to be reborn as God's child. In John chapter 1, verse 12, he says that as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, gave the right to become the sons of God. 1 John 3, 1 reminds us that how great a love God showed us by allowing us to become his children. So that is our only opportunity to have a perfect father, one who approves us for who we are, not for what we've done, one with perfect advice. He has given the answers in his word to any question on any subject that we may encounter. And most of all, he shows us unconditional love. I believe it's impossible to love if we've never felt love. That's fairly evident if we look around us. Um, sometimes not too far away. If someone has not experienced love, um, they find it very, very difficult to pass that love on. We are shaped by what we have been given, and we dispense what we have received. And if the little love bucket is empty, um, it doesn't spill over very well either. So whether that's love or approval, hate or scorn, what we receive is passed on. Getting a new father gives us a new identity. We get a new family tree. Our family reunion now includes different people. We just came from a reunion a couple weeks ago. Uh, they weren't all there, but it was very, very good to... Um, there's, there's somehow a connection with family, even though I see you guys more than I see them. There's still a connection there that is just hard to, to uh, duplicate. And our, our, godly, our spiritual family is the same way. There's a connection there. There should be a connection there. 
that we simply do not feel with, with other people. Ephesians 5.1 says, To be imitators of God as dear children, there should be a strong family resemblance here. Do we know what God looks like? To imitate someone, there needs to be a certain amount of time spent studying that person and what he or she does. On a more practical note, <clears throat> turn to Psalm 127, um, verses 3 through 5. Behold, children are an heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with the enemies in the gate. So this is a very familiar passage, often spoken of in the context of children. And it very plainly says that children are a treasure, something given um, from God to be treasured, a heritage, something that is passed on. And it compares them here to arrows. And a bow and arrows today are largely used for recreation. Um, very few people could not live without them. Some might argue that, but they're not as essential to survival as they were in time past. Um, they used to be used in war or simply gathering food. They were very, very important here. And whether a person made their own arrows or bought them from someone, um, they were all handmade. Uh, there was some time as well as effort put into them. Uh, the bow needed to be straight, strong. Arrows had to be um, very true or they would not fly correctly. Arrows aren't expendable like bullets are. Uh, no one likes to lose an arrow today, and probably even less so back then, because they had to take the time to remake them. So back then, like I said, there was an added element of having a fair bit of time, as well as money, invested into arrows. And I'm doubtful they were just shot carelessly. There was certainly a lot of effort made to shoot the arrows straight and true so that they would hit their mark and fulfill their purpose. The more time, the more um, effort and money is invested into something, the more care is given that they fulfill their desired purpose. And obviously the parallel to children is there as well. Um, I won't go so far as to say that a hunter treasures his arrows. Uh, there might be a few extreme cases there. Um, I'm sure some probably treasure them more than others. <clears throat> But a hunter certainly recognizes the value of his arrows and does his best to make them count. And verse 5, as we always read this, um, an interesting number there, a full quiver. I know people have used that down through the ages to say how many you should have or not. Um, we're not even going to go there. Um, I, I know that that number varies with hunters um, as well as parents. And we stop and think about it. A hunter did not go out with fewer arrows than what he thought he needed to accomplish his purpose. Obviously, um, we use what God gives us, but at the same time, a hunter realizes that he needed a certain number to reach his full potential. But too many also could be a problem as well. We think of a hunter, he said, man, you know, let's just stuff in here one more. And he had a quiver so full, and he tried to go out and hunt. And well, yeah, anyway, more isn't always better. So I would encourage you, um, ask God to direct you as you fill your quiver. God knows the right amount, and he will direct you in his will for your life. Now, I spent the majority of time on the first stage, um, that of treasuring your child, because I believe that's a foundation that must be laid for the following stages to be effective. And like I said, that treasuring needs to continue throughout the following stages, or the connection is lost there. 
And the second stage is to train your child. And this one um, is maybe not, doesn't bring as many pleasant thoughts as treasuring. Um, training isn't necessarily something that any of us look forward to or think is as pleasant. We think of training, we think of possibly training the dog. We to sit, to roll over, to fetch, um, to stay. And we think, well, that's, that's different kind of from using that term to train a child. Um, but I believe that there is value in simply training in similar ways that you might your pet, um, through repetition, through punishment, rewards, um, that no means no. Uh, my cousin two weeks ago was, was telling me in glowing words how his dog, he can put a treat there and say stay, and the dog will just sit there and wait until he says you can have it, and the dog leaps upon the treat there. And that was, that was really great. I, I think his kids you know, are similar. I don't know if he didn't do that with his kids, but um, somehow that's, that's awesome if we can train an animal to behave that well. And I think, no, we don't want to train robots, but at the same time, we do need to, at a young age, um, train our children what no means, um, to train obedience. And the age I'm suggesting here, um, very soon after birth, continuing to transition and overlap with the next stage, which we'll get to, um, as you begin to talk and begin to communicate, but that those first number of months and years are a training stage. And I came across an interesting verse in 1 Kings um, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, that I'm going to read in the New Living because I think it um, gives an interesting take on it. It says, Anna... Adonijah, okay, about that time, David's son Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, began boasting, I will make myself king. So one of David's sons, not Absalom, but another one, will start, I didn't do research on the background here, says he's going to make himself king. So he provided himself with chariots, charioteers, and recruited 50 men to run in front of him. Now his father, King David, had never disciplined him at any time, even by asking, what are you doing? So a very interesting little nugget there that we're given um, David, for all he was, apparently had some shortcomings when it came to fatherhood, and this particular son was never given any kind of direction, discipline at all in life, and he ended up um, trying to overthrow his father's kingdom. And unfortunately, we see there, um, it does mention that um, it gives the reason for that as David having never disciplined him as a child. And we don't know, maybe David, you know, we hear, well, he loved him too much. Uh, but now that same son was rebelling against his father. <clears throat> and in contrast, um, Hebrews 12, verses 7 and 8, As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all his children, it means you are illegitimate and not really his children at all. So it says here that if God really is your father, you will experience discipline, and the same goes true for earthly fathers as well. If we really do love our children, we will discipline them as well. Proverbs 22, verse 6 says, Train up a child the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. So back to the analogy of the arrow. An arrow's direction is determined before it leaves the bow, not after. Um, if you did not aim correctly when you shoot, it's probably not going to veer back onto course. The third stage is the teaching stage, or we could maybe say the stage of a million questions. There's those of you that are in that stage now. And it differs from training in that there's much more two-way interaction between the parent and the child. With the training stage, it feels kind of overwhelming, even harsh at times. 
but again, a very necessary step that sets the foundation for these later stages here. The teaching stage, in my opinion, is much more enjoyable stage than the training stage. Um, it's a time of immense opportunity for planting the seeds, the good seeds that should be sown. At that stage, the soil is very loose, uh, very ready to receive what it is taught, probably more so than any other time in the child's life. And what's planted during this time will grow, and it takes patience not just to plant, but also to water those seeds and to keep the weeds pulled as well. This is the time to teach him about God, about the Bible, Bible stories, Bible songs, God's ways. The teaching stage begins and overlaps the training stage as soon as the child is able to communicate. So as soon as you're having back and forth communication, this teaching stage begins and the two overlap in the younger years. Teach him the ways of God, his laws, his truth, his plan of salvation long before the child reaches the age of accountability. Before that age, yes, we know children are naughty, they need discipline, but they're only following a sinful nature and they are not willfully sinning against God yet at this young age. And so this is your window of opportunity to shape that sinful nature and teach them instead the ways of obedience so that when the time comes that God calls them, they are accustomed to obeying. The fourth stage is trust. And as a son, I've been through that stage, but my perspective changes as we enter that stage as parents. Um, those of you and us with teenagers are in this stage, um, knowing when to let go, when to hold our ground. Again, this stage needs to happen or the child is never able to mature above a child. Um, he or she will need to be allowed to start making some of their own decisions, own choices, and then as well accepting the rewards, the consequences that come with those choices. They also feel the need to be trusted and to be affirmed when they have made trustworthy decisions and not just rebuked when they have not. They're becoming young adults now and don't appreciate or deserve to still be treated as children. <clears throat> the fifth and final stage is the transfer stage. This is when the roles begin to slowly reverse between the father and his children. Now the father calls his son for advice as much as the son calls the father, and the baton of leadership is carefully being passed on to the next generation. This is when all that trust that the son was wanting back when he was 17 gets placed on his shoulders, and it feels a little heavier than he thought it would be back then. It brings a lot of responsibility along with that trust. Again, we have an example of that in the life of Jesus, Matthew chapter 28. This is nearing the end of Jesus' time on earth here. Uh, we refer to this as the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came and spake to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. <clears throat> so here Jesus is transferring the responsibility of ministry to his disciples. His disciples were the closest thing he had on earth to sons, and he was transferring his ministry to them. He was leaving for an undetermined amount of time and knew there would not be time when he returned to finish up what hadn't been done. And so he left his ministry that he had so carefully started, um, put so much of his time here into, left it to a bunch of rough-edged fishermen, um, ex-IRS people, 
Um, you think of, of who these, these guys were, and it's, uh, yeah, would, would we trust and leave something as important as Jesus did to who he did? Were they ready? Um, some were. It says here, verse 17, some still doubted. Some still were not, did not quite get the full picture of what was happening. But if we read on into the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit came, filled them with his power, and they stepped up to their responsibility. They knew they had a perfect father, in a perfect heavenly father, and with his help they did their best to show, as his sons, what their father looked like to the world around them. They had experienced him for themselves, and they wanted to share the opportunity with as many others as they possibly could. So where does that leave us today? Can we be perfect fathers? Um, at least I can't. I can't speak for the rest of you, but as humans, no, we cannot be perfect, perfect fathers. But we do have a clear example given to us by Christ, and we have the challenge of modeling our lives as closely as possible to that example, so when others see us, they see the perfect father in us as well. With those thoughts, let's stand for prayer, and then we'll remain standing for the closing song. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that you are a perfect father that we can trust. Thank you for the examples of fatherhood that you have given us so that we, can, so that we as earthly fathers have a pattern for our lives. Help us to look to you as the only example of a perfect father and the only source of perfect advice. Help us to live our lives in such a way that those seeing us can see us as your sons and daughters as well as seeing you through us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.